0: Chapter Twenty Two of the Junior Classics, Volume Seven Stories of Courage and Heroism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Junior Classics, Volume Seven Stories of Courage and Heroism by William Patton. The Boy Conqueror, Charles the Twelfth of Sweden by e s brooks in an old old palace on the rocky height of the slotsbacke or palace hill in the northern quarter of the beautiful city of stockholm the capital of sweden there lived just two hundred years ago a bright young prince his father was a stern and daring warrior king a man who had been a fighter from his earliest boyhood who at fourteen had been present in four pitched battles with the danes and who while yet scarce twelve years old had charged the danish line at the head of his guards and shot down the stout danish colonel who could not resist the spry young warrior his mother was a sweet-faced danish princess a loving and gentle lady who scarce ever heard a kind word from her stern-faced husband and whose whole life was bound up in her precious little prince and this little carolus carl or charles dearly loved his tender mother from her he learned lessons of truth and nobleness that even through all his stormy and wandering life never forsook him often while he had swung gently to and fro in his quaint carved and uncomfortable-looking cradle had she crooned above him the old saga songs that told of valour and dauntless courage and all the stern virtues that made up the heroes of those same old saga songs many a time had she trotted the little fellow on her knee to the music of the ancient nursery rhyme that has a place in all lands and languages from the steppes of siberia to the homes of new york and san francisco ride along ride a cock-horse his mane is dapple gray ride along ride a cock-horse little boy ride away where shall the little boy ride to to the king's court to woo and so forth and so forth and so forth in different phrases but with the same idea as many and many a girl and boy can remember and she had told him over and over again the saga stories and fairy tales that every scandinavian boy and girl from prince to peasant knows so well of Frithiof and ingeborg and the good king rene and about the stone giant and his wife guru and about the dwarfs and trolls and nixies and beautiful mermaids and stromkarls and she told him also many a story of brave and daring deeds of noble and knightly lives and how his ancestors from the great gustavus and before from the still greater Gustavus Vasa, had been kings of Sweden and had made the name of that northern land a power in all the courts of Europe. Little Prince Charles was as brave as he was gentle and jolly, and as hardy as he was brave. At five years old, he killed his first fox. At seven, he could manage his horse like a young centaur. And at twelve, he had his first successful bear hunt. He was as obstinate as he was hardy, he steadily refused to learn Latin or French, the languages of the court, until he heard that the kings of Denmark and Poland understood them, and then he speedily mastered them. His lady mother's death, when he was scarce twelve years old, was a great sadness, and nearly caused his own death. But recovering his health, he accompanied his father on hunting parties and military expeditions, and daily grew stronger and hardier than ever. In April 1697, when the prince was not yet fifteen, King Charles the Eleventh, his stern faced father, suddenly died, and the boy king succeeded to the throne as absolute lord of Sweden and Finland, of Livonia, Karelia, Ingria, Wismar, Viborg, the islands of Rugen and Oesel, of Pomerania. And the duchies of Bremen and Verdun, one of the finest possessions to which a young king ever succeeded, and representing what is now Sweden, Western Russia, and a large part of Northern Germany. A certain amount of restraint is best for us all. As the just restraints of the law are best for men and women, so the proper restraints of home are best for boys and girls. A lad from whom all restraining influences are suddenly withdrawn, who can have his own way unmolested, stands in the greatest danger of wrecking his life. The temptations of power have been the cause of very much of the world's sadness and misery, and this temptation came to this boy king of Sweden, called, in his fifteenth year, to supreme sway over a large realm of loyal subjects. Freed from the severity of his stern father's discipline, he found himself responsible to no one, absolutely his own master. And he did what too many of us, I fear, would have done in his position. He determined to have a jolly good time, come what might, and he had it in his way. He and his brother-in-law, the wild young Duke of Holstein, turned the town upside down, They snapped cherry-pits at the king's grey-bearded councillors, and smashed in the windows of the staid and scandalized burghers of Stockholm. They played ball with the table-dishes, and broke all the benches in the palace chapel. They coursed hares through the council-chambers of the Parliament House, and ran furious races until they had ruined several fine horses. They beheaded sheep in the palace till the floors ran with blood and then pelted the passers-by with sheep's heads they spent the money in the royal treasury like water and played so many heedless and ruthless boy tricks that the period of these months of folly was known long after as the Gotorp fury because the harem scarum young brother-in-law who was the ringleader in all these scrapes was duke of holstein Gotorp. but at last even the people serfs of this boy autocrat though they were Began to murmur, and when one Sunday morning three clergymen preached from the text, Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child! The young sovereign remembered the counsels of his good mother, and recalled the glories of his ancestors, saw how foolish and dangerous was all this reckless sport, turned over a new leaf, became thoughtful and caretaking, and began his career of conquest with the best victory of all. The conquest of himself but though he curbed his tendency to profitless and hurtful skylarking he had far too much of the berserker blood of his ancestors those rough old vikings who despised mail and helmet and went into battle unharnessed to become altogether gentle in manners or occupation he hated his fair skin and sought in every way to tan and roughen it and to harden himself by exposure and neglect of personal comfort. Many a night was passed by the boy on the bare floor, and for three nights in the cold Swedish December he slept in the hayloft of the palace stables, without undressing and with but scanty covering. So he grew to be a lad of seventeen, sturdy, strong, and hardy, and at the date of our story in the year of 1699, The greater part of his time was given up to military exercises and field sports, with but little attention to debates in council or to the cares of state. Among his chief enjoyments were the sham fights on land and water. Many a hard-fought battle was waged between the boys and young men who made up his guards and crews, and who would be divided into two or more opposing parties, as the plan of battle required. This was rough and dangerous sport, and was attended often with really serious results. But the participants were stout and sturdy northern lads, used to hardships and trained to physical endurance. They thought no more of these encounters than do the boys of today of the crush of football and the hard-hitting of the baseball field. And blows were given, and taken, with equal good nature and unconcern. One raw day in the early fall of 1699, sturdy young Arvid Horn, a stout, blue-eyed Stockholm boy, stripped to the waist and with a gleam of fun in his eyes, stood upright in his little boat as it bobbed on the crest of the choppy Malar waves. He hailed the King's yacht. "'Hullo! In the boat there! Stand for your lives!' he shouted, and levelled his long squirt-gun full at the helmsman. Swish came the well directed stream of water plump against the helmsman's face. Again and again it flew, until dripping and sore he dropped the tiller and dashed down the companionway, calling loudly for help. Help came speedily, and as the crew of the king's yacht manned the rail and levelled at their single assailant the squirt guns, which were the principal weapons of warfare used in these make believe naval engagements, the fun grew fast and furious but none had so sure an aim or so strong an arm to send an unerring and staggering stream as young arvid horn one by one he drove them back while as his boat drifted still nearer the yacht he made ready to spring to the force chains and board his prize but even before he could steady himself for the jump another tall and fair-haired stockholm lad darting out from the high cabin rallied the defeated crew and bade them man the pumps at once a clumsy-looking fire engine stood amidship and the crew leaped to its pumps as directed while the newcomer catching up a line of hose sprang to the rail and sent a powerful stream of water straight against the solitary rover repel boarders he cried laughingly and the sudden stream from the fire engine's nozzle sent young arvid horn staggering back into his boat. But he rallied quickly, and with well-charged squirt-gun attacked the new defender of the yacht. The big nozzle, however, was more than a match for the lesser squirt-gun, and the small boat speedily began to fill under the constant deluge of water from the engine. "'Yield thee, yield thee, Arvid Horn! Yield thee to our unconquerable nozzle!' came to the summons from the yacht. Yield thee, or I will drown you out like a rat in a cheese-press. Arvid Horn yields to no one, the plucky boy in the boat made answer, and with a parting shot and a laughing, Farvel, he leaped from the sinking boat into the dancing Malar water. Striking boldly out, he swam twice round the boat in sheer bravado, defying the enemy, now ducking to escape the pursuing stream, or now, while floating on his back, Sending a return shot with telling force against the men at the pump, for he still clung to his trusty squirt gun. The fair faced lad in the yacht looked at the swimmer in evident admiration. Is it then hard to swim, Arvid Horn? He inquired. Not if one is fearless, called back the floating boy. How fearless! exclaimed the lad on the yacht hastily. Do you perhaps think that I am afraid? I said not so, replied young Arvid, coolly sending a full charge from his squirt gun straight up in the air. No, but you mean it. Good faith you mean it, then, said the lad, and flinging off wig, cocked hat, and long coat only, without an instant's hesitation he too leaped into the Malar Lake. There is nothing so cooling to courage or reckless enthusiasm as cold water. If one cannot swim, the boy plunged and floundered, and weighty with his boots and his clothing, soon sank from sight. As he came spluttering to the surface again, Help! Help, Arvid! he called despairingly. I am drowning. Arvid, who had swum away from his friend, thinking that he would follow after, heard the cry and caught a still louder one from the yacht The king! the king is sinking! a few strokes brought him near to the overconfident diver and clutching him by his shirt-collar he kept the lad's head above water until after a long and laborious swim he brought his kingly burden safe to land for the fair-haired and reckless young knight of the nozzle was none other than his gracious majesty charles the twelfth of sweden truly it is one thing to be brave and another to be skilful said the king as he stood soaked and dripping on the shore. But for you, friend Arvid, I had almost gone. You are very wet, sire, and may take cold, said Arvid. Let us hasten at once to yonder house for warmth and dry clothes. Not so, Arvid. I do not fear the water on land, said the king. I am no such milksop as to need to dry off before a kitchen fire. See, this is the better way, and catching up a stout hazel-stick, he bade Arvid stand on his guard. Nothing loath, Arvid Horn accepted the kingly challenge, and picking up a similar hazel-stick, he rapped King Charles's weapon smartly, and the two boys went at each other, hammer and tongs, in a lively bout at single-stick. They were soon thoroughly warmed up by this vigorous exercise, and forgot their recent bath and the king's danger. It was a drawn battle, however, and as they paused for breath, King Charles said, ''Trust that to drive away cold and ague, Arvid. Faith, tis a rare good sport.'' ''Could it be done on horseback, think you?'' queried Arvid, always on the lookout for sensation. ''And why not?'' ''Tis well thought,'' said the King. ''Let us straight to the palace yard and try it for ourselves.'' But ere they reached the palace the idea had developed into still greater proportions. The king's guards were summoned, and divided into two parties. Their horses were unsaddled, and riding bareback and armed with nothing but hazel sticks, the two forces were pitted against each other in a great cavalry duel of single stick. King Charles commanded one side, and young Arvid Horn the other. At it they went. Now one side and now the other having the advantage, the two leaders fighting with especial vigour. Arvid pressed the king closely, and both lads were full of the excitement of the fray when Charles, careless of his aim and with his customary recklessness, brought his hazel stick with a terrible thwack upon poor Arvid's face. Now Arvid Horn had a boil on his cheek and if any of my boy readers know what a tender piece of property a boil is they will know that king charles's hazel-stick was not a welcome poultice with a cry of pain arvid fell fainting from his horse and the cavalry battle at single stick came to a sudden stop but the heat and the pain brought on so fierce a fever that the lad was soon as near to death's door as his friend king charles Had been in the sea-fight of the squirt guns the king was deeply concerned during young arvid's illness and when the lad at last recovered he made him a present of two thousand thalers laughingly promising to repeat the prescription whenever arvid was again wounded at single stick he was greatly pleased to have his friend with him once more and when arvid was strong enough to join in his vigorous sports again one of the first things he proposed was a great bear hunt up among the snow-filled forests that skirted the Mälar Lake. A day's ride from Stockholm, the hunting lodge of the kings of Sweden lay upon the heavily drifted hill slopes just beyond the lake shore, and through the forests and marshes, two hundred years ago, the big brown bear of northern Europe, the noble elk, the now almost extinct auroch or bison and the great gray wolf roamed in fierce and savage strength affording exciting and dangerous sport for daring hunters and among these hunters none excelled young charles of sweden reckless in the face of danger and brave as he was reckless he was ever on the alert for any novelty in the manner of hunting that should make the sport even more dangerous and exciting so young arvid horn was not surprised when the King said to him, ''I have a new way for hunting the bear, Arvid, and a rarely good one too.'' ''Of that I'll be bound, sire,'' young Arvid responded. ''But how may it be?'' ''You shall know, anon,'' King Charles replied, ''but this much will I say. I do hold it but a coward's part to fight the poor brute with firearms. Give the fellow a chance for his life,'' say I, ''and a fair fight in open field,'' And then let the best man win. Here was a new idea. Not hunt the bear with musket, carbine, or wheel lock? What then? Did King Charles reckon to have a wrestling bout or a turn at single stick with a Jarl Bruin? So wondered Arvid Horn, but he said nothing, waiting the king's own pleasure, as became a shrewd young courtier. And soon enough he learned the boy hunter's new manner of bear hunting when on the very day of their arrival at the malar lodge they tracked a big brown bear beneath the great pines and spruces of the almost boundless forest armed only with strong wooden pitchforks arvid was not at all anxious for this fighting at close quarters but when he saw king charles boldly advance upon the growling bear when he saw the great brute rise on his hind legs and threaten to hug sweden's monarch to death He would have sprung forward to aid his king. But a huntsman near at hand held him back. Wait, said the man. Let the little father play his part. And even as he spoke, Arvid saw the king walk deliberately up to the towering bear, and with a quick thrust of his long-handled fork, catch the brute's neck between the pointed wooden prongs, and with a mighty shove force the bear backward in the snow. Then answering his cry of, Hello, all, oh, the huntsman sprang to his side, flung a stout net over the struggling bear, and held it thus, a floundering prisoner, while the intrepid king coolly cut its throat with his sharp hunting knife. Arvid learned to do this, too, in time, but it required some extra courage even for his steady young head and hand. One day, when each of the lads had thus transfixed and killed his bear, and as in high spirits they were returning to the hunting-lodge, a courserman dashed hurriedly across their path, recognized the king, and reining in his horse, dismounted hastily, saluted, and handed the king a packet. "'From the council, sire,' he said. Up to this day the young king had taken but little interest in the affairs of state, save as he directed the review or drill, leaving the matters of treaty and of state policy to his trusted counsellors. He received the courserman's dispatch with evident unconcern, and read it carelessly. But his face changed as he read it a second time, first clouding darkly, and then lighting up with the gleam of a new determination and purpose. "'What says Count Piper?' he exclaimed half aloud holstein laid waste by denmark gottorp castle taken and the duke a fugitive and my council dares to temper and negotiate ach so arvid horn we must be in stockholm ere nightfall but sire how can you exclaimed arvid the roads are heavy with snow and no horse could stand the strain or hope to make the city ere morning no horse cried king charles then three shall do it. Hasten, bid Hord the equerry, harness the triple team to the strongest sledge, and be you ready to ride with me in a half-hour's time, or we shall be in Stockholm by nightfall. And ere the half-hour was up, they were off. Careless of roadway, straight for Stockholm they headed, the triple team of plunging Ukraine horses, driven abreast by the old equerry Hord, dashing down the slopes and across the malar ice, narrowly escaping collision, overturn and death. With many a plunge and many a ducking, straight on they rode, and ere the Stockholm clocks had struck the hour of six, the city gates were passed, and the spent and foaming steeds dashed panting into the great yard of the Parliament House. The council was still in session, and the grave old councillor started to their feet in amazement at this sudden apparition of the boy king soiled and bespattered from head to foot standing there in their midst gentlemen he said with earnestness and determination in his voice your dispatch tells me of unfriendly acts on the part of the king of denmark against our brother and ally of holstein gottorp i am resolved never to begin an unjust war but never to finish an unjust one Save with the destruction of mine enemies. My resolution is fixed. I will march and attack the first one who shall declare war, and when I shall have conquered him, I hope to strike terror into the rest. These were ringing and seemingly reckless words for a boy of seventeen, and we do not wonder that, as the record states, the old councillors, astonished at this declaration, looked at one another without daring to answer. The speech seemed all the more reckless when they considered, as we may hear, the coalition against which the boy king spoke so confidently. At that time, in the year 1699, the three neighbors of this young Swedish monarch were three kings of powerful northern nations, Frederick IV, king of Denmark, Augustus, called the strong, king of Poland and elector of Saxony, and Peter, afterwards known as the Great, Tsar of Russia. Tempted by the large possessions of young King Charles, and thinking to take advantage of his youth, his inexperience, and his presumed indifference, these three monarchs concocted a fine scheme by which Sweden was to be overrun, conquered, and divided among the three members of this new co-partnership of kings, from each of whom, or from their predecessors, this boy-king's ancestors, had rested many a fair domain and wealthy city. But these three kings, as has many and many another plotter in history before and since, reckoned without their host. They did not know the mettle that was in this grand-nephew of the great Gustavus. Once aroused to action, he was ready to move before even his would-be conquerors in those slow-going days imagined he had thought of resistance money and men were raised the alliance of england and holland was secretly obtained a council of defense was appointed to govern sweden during the absence of the king and on april twenty third seventeen hundred two months before his eighteenth birthday king charles bade his grandmother and his sisters good-bye and left stockholm forever Even as he left, the news came that another member in this firm of hostile kings, Augustus of Saxony and Poland, had invaded Sweden's tributary province of Livonia on the Gulf of Finland. Not to be drawn aside from his first object, the punishment of Denmark, Charles simply said, We will make King Augustus go back the way he came, and hurried on to join his army in southern Sweden. By August 3, 1700, King Charles had grown tired of waiting for his reserves and new recruits, and so, with scarce six thousand men, he sailed away from Malmo, clear down at the most southerly point of Sweden, across the Sound, and steered for the Danish coast not twenty-five miles away. Young Arvid Horn, still the king's fast friend, and now one of his aides, following his leader, leaped into the first of the small barges or rowboats that were to take the troops from the frigates to the danish shore his young general and king impatient at the slowness of the clumsy barges while yet three hundred yards from shore stood upright in the stern drew his sword and exclaimed i am wearied with this pace all you who are for denmark follow me and then sword in hand he sprang over into the sea Arvid Horn quickly followed his royal friend. The next moment, generals and ministers, ambassadors and belaced officials, with the troops that filled the boats, were wading waist deep through the shallow water of the sound, struggling toward the Danish shore, and fully as enthusiastic as their hasty young leader and king. The Danish musket balls fell thick around them as the Danish troops sought from their trenches to repel the invaders. What strange whizzing noise is this in the air? asked the young king now for the first time in action. "'Tis the noise of the musket-balls they fire upon you," was the reply. "'Ach, say you so,' said Charles. "'Good, good! From this time forward, that shall be my music!' In the face of this music the shore was gained, the trenches were carried by fierce assault, and king charles's first battle was won two days later copenhagen submitted to its young conqueror and king frederick of denmark hastened to the defense of his capital only to find it in the possession of the enemy and to sign a humiliating treaty of peace the boy conqueror's first campaign was over and as his biographer says He had at the age of eighteen begun and finished a war in less than six weeks. Accepting nothing for himself from this conquest, he spared the land from which his dearly remembered mother had come from the horrors of war and pillage which in those days were not only allowable but expected. King Augustus of Poland, seeing the short work made of his ally the King of Denmark by this boy king whom they had all regarded with so much contempt, deemed discretion to be the better part of valor, and as the lad had prophesied, withdrew from Livonia, going back by the way he came. Then the young conqueror, flushed with his successes, turned his army against his third and greatest enemy, Tsar Peter of Russia, who with over 80,000 men was besieging the Swedish town of Narva. A quaint old German-looking town, Situated a few miles from the shores of the Gulf of Finland, in what is now the Baltic provinces of Russia, and near to the site of the Tsar's later capital of St. Petersburg, the stout walled town of Narva was the chief defense of Sweden on its eastern borders, and a stronghold which the Russian monarch especially coveted for his own. Young Arvid Horn's uncle, the Count Horn, was in command of the Swedish forces in the town which with a thousand men he held for the young king his master against all the host of the Tsar Peter. The boy who had conquered Denmark in less than six weeks, and forced a humiliating peace from Poland, was not the lad to consider for a moment the question of risk or of outnumbering forces. In the middle of November, when all that cold northern land is locked in ice and snow, he flung out the eagle flag of sweden to the baltic blasts and crossed to the instant relief of narva with an army of barely twenty thousand men landing at pernau with but a portion of his troops he pushed straight on and with scarce eight thousand men hurried forward to meet the enemy with a courage as daring as his valor was headlong he surprised and routed first one and then another advanced detachment of the russian force and soon twenty five thousand demoralized and defeated men were retreating before him into the russian camp in less than two days all the russian outposts were carried and on the noon of the thirtieth of november seventeen hundred the boy from sweden appeared with his eight thousand victory flushed though wearied troops before the fortified camp of his enemy and without a moment's hesitation ordered instant battle. Sire, said one of his chief officers, the general Stenbock, do you comprehend the greatness of our danger? The Muscovites outnumber us ten to one. What, then, said the intrepid young king, do you imagine that with my eight thousand brave Swedes I shall not be able to march over the bodies of eighty thousand Muscovites? And then at the signal of two fusees and the watchword, with the help of God, He ordered his cannon to open on the Russian trenches, and through a furious snowstorm charged straight upon the enemy. Again valor and enthusiasm triumphed. The Russian line broke before the impetuosity of the Swedes and, as one chronicler says, ran about like a herd of cattle. The bridge across the river broke under the weight of fugitives. Panic followed, and when night fell the great russian army of eighty thousand men surrendered as prisoners of war to a boy of eighteen with but eight thousand tired soldiers at his back so the boy conqueror entered upon his career of victory space does not permit to detail his battles and his conquests how he placed a new king on the throne of poland kept denmark in submission held the hosts of russia at bay humbled austria and made his name ere yet he was twenty at once a wonder and a terror in all the courts of europe how at last his ambition getting the better of his discretion he thought to be a modern alexander to make europe protestant subdue rome and carry his conquering eagles into egypt and turkey and persia how by unwise measures and foolhardy endeavours he lost all the fruits of his hundred victories And his nine years of conquest in the terrible defeat by the Russians at Pultova, which sent him in exile into Turkey, kept him there a prisoner of state for over five years, and how finally, when once again at the head of Swedish troops, instead of defending his own homeland of Sweden, he invaded Norway in the depth of winter, and was killed when but thirty-six by a cannon shot from the enemy's batteries at Frederikshal on December the eleventh, seventeen eighteen. Charles the 12th of Sweden was one of the most remarkable of the world's historic boys elevated to a throne founded on despotic power and victorious memories at an age when most lads regard themselves as the especial salt of the earth he found himself launched at once into a war with three powerful nations only to become in turn the conqueror of each a singularly good boy So far as the customary temptations of power and high station are concerned, temperate, simple, and virtuous in tastes, dress, and habits, he was, as one of his biographers has remarked, the only one among kings who had lived without a single frailty. But this valorous boy who had first bridled his own spirit, and then conquered the northern world, reared, as has been said, under a father cold and stern defectively educated, taught from childhood to value nothing but military glory, could not withstand the temptation of success. An ambition to be somebody, and to do something, is always a laudable one in a boy or girl, until it supplants and overgrows the sweet, true and manly boy and girl nature, and makes us regardless of the comfort or the welfare of others a desire to excel the great conquerors of old joined to an obstinacy as strong as his courage caused young charles of sweden to miss the golden opportunity and instead of seeking to rule his own country wisely sent him abroad a homeless wanderer on a career of conquest as romantic as it was first glorious and at the last disastrous in the northern quarter of the beautiful city of Stockholm, surrounded by palaces and gardens, theatres, statues, and fountains, stands Moland's striking statue of the boy conqueror, Charles Twelfth of Sweden. Guarded at the base by captured mortars, the outstretched hand and unsheathed sword seem to tell of conquests to be won and victories to be achieved but to the boy and girl of this age of peace and good-fellowship when wars are averted rather than sought and wise statesmanship looks rather to the healing than to the opening of the world's wounds one cannot but feel how much grander nobler and more helpful would have been the life of this young lion of the north as his turkish captors called him had it been devoted to deeds of gentleness and charity rather than of blood and sorrow And how much more enduring might have been his fame and his memory, if he had been the lover and helper of his uncultivated and civilization-needing people, rather than the valorous, ambitious, headstrong, and obstinate boy conqueror of two centuries ago. End of the Boy Conqueror, Charles the Twelfth of Sweden, by E. S. Brooks.